Our topic this hour is contentment in weakness. I want to speak to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, really a marvelous, marvelous chapter of the New Testament, and our passage will be verses 1 to 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Paul writes this, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May God be praised, and may he write his truth upon our hearts. Let's pray again. Our Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Send forth now thy Spirit to shine his light upon the Word and in our hearts, each of us according to our need, because you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians is a very interesting book of the New Testament, and in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending himself uh, uh, and in a way that is defending... A philosophy of Christian weakness and suffering. He is contending against those whom he calls the super apostles, who would be more or less analogous today to the prosperity gospel teachers. Their doctrine was, if you're really a man of God, then the prosperity of that will be evident on the surface of your life, and outwardly you will have good things happen to you, and you will not have bad things happen to you, and frankly, this Paul guy has a lot of bad things happen to him. He's beaten an awful lot if he's a man of God. Tim Keller, preaching on this text, made the comment that you know Paul managed to be shipwrecked three times. The average person says, look, I've been crossing the Mediterranean, never been shipwrecked. Paul, he, can't, he can hardly sail in a ship without it running aground. And he's supposed to be a man of God? And so that's what he's contending with here. And Paul, rather than shrinking back against the super apostles and, and 
protecting himself against that accusation, he steps forward into it. And he makes the argument exactly counter. He says, no, it is my weaknesses that show that it is the gospel at work in my life and that validate Christ and his work in me. I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, he says in 11 verse 5. Yes, they had worldly strength. He had spiritual strength. They had spiritual weakness. He had worldly weakness. And so Paul is not hiding his weakness. But as we are dealing with the real issue of contentment as weak people, as suffering people, the Apostle Paul boasts in the very thing we struggle to find contentment in. I want to give five points, the first of which is a general entryway into it, and then we'll work through contentment and weakness having done that. The first point is in the first portion of the passage that Christians, on the one hand, will have wonderful experiences. We are privileged in so many ways that is uh, obviously uh, a mark of the grace of God in our lives that we would not have if, if we were not Christians, but correspondingly together with those privileges and blessings, we have suffering and weakness, and this is the Christian life. Now, Paul uses an example, a remarkable one in his experience. Uh, we're, we're catching him in mid-argument here. He's, he's, uh, he's ridiculing the boasting of the super apostles, and he is setting forth a better doctrine of boasting. He says we really should not be boasting in ourselves, but if you want me to boast, I'll, I'll boast. And he tells a story rhetorically here of a man he knows, it's quite clear, it's Paul himself, who 14 years ago was caught up in a vision to the third heaven. Now, in their cosmology, the first heaven is the sky, the second heaven is the higher atmosphere, and the third heaven is what we think of as heaven, the abode of God. And 14 years earlier, now people will try to find from the book of Acts where this occurred. Actually, it's clearly before that. Uh, 14 years earlier from 2 Corinthians would put it in the late 30s. And so this is not that long after Paul's been converted during that early period where the Lord's developing him and, and discipling him. And Paul, by his own revelation here, was caught up. He, it's fascinating. He says, I, it was obviously a, a kind of ecstatic vision you'll see the prophets get like John the Apostle had in the book of Revelation on Patmos, Zechariah had in the eight-night visions. Uh, he's not even sure if he was bodily there or not. He was there spiritually. He was consciously there, and he saw things, and he heard things that he cannot, that there's no way to convey them. By the way, it's interesting. Uh, Paul, you get the impression that this is the first time he's talked about this. 14 years earlier, he's up into heaven. You know, we'd have, we'd have written a bestseller or two by now. Um, <laughs> And I always, I always compare this when people have their I've been to heaven and back. I go, isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't, doesn't treat it that way? Um, and, uh, but, but now he's going to boast, not about it actually, but about what happens afterwards. But let, let's just suffice it to say that this was a privilege that the Lord gave him for his benefit and particularly for his future ministry. Now, you, you say, well, do I get to get caught up in a vision into heaven? Probably not. I think that's a fairly safe statement that you probably will not be caught up in the spirit into the third heaven. And yet you will have precious privileges. Aren't we enjoying some of that right now? 
The worship we have and our hearts are filled. What a thing it is to have the experience that the Emmaus Road disciples had in Luke 24 when Jesus opened up the scripture and the spirit shined his light in their hearts as we prayed that he would do. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures? You know what that's like. And what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to have Christian friendship and Christian marriage where our relationships have a supernatural component. We're spiritual. There's all kinds of wonderful privileges and blessings that, 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 that affect our lives. You know, being a Christian couple on your street, it ought to be noticeable that your relationship with your spouse and with your kids is different. And that's a blessing to you. And so as a Christian, maybe not in the exact same way that Paul did, you're going to have many privileges, but you are correspondingly going to have trials as well. This is the normative experience of the Christian, both privileges but corresponding suffering. And Paul brings this up by mentioning in verse 7 the thorn in his flesh. Very famous passage, very interesting, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, we're not told what it is, but that has not stopped the speculation. Uh, reams of, of paper have been used. Uh, one of the uh, famous examples is people say, well, I think it's bad eyesight. Because in one of his letters, Paul says, I write with big letters because I, I have poor eyesight. I just can't take seriously the idea that Paul the apostle was that tormented by bad eyesight. And some will say malaria, uh, others will say this or that. Now, we can say a few things about it. It is a thorn. What is a thorn? A small but nonetheless annoying and painful thing. You ever got a thorn in your finger and the end of it was in there and you couldn't get it out? And it shouldn't be that when we're parents, we tell our kids, stop worrying about it. It's no big deal. Then we get a thorn. It drives us crazy. <laughs> and uh, it was an annoying, aggravating, uh, small but painful. Spurgeon calls it not a killing trial, but still a little thing, but something very painful. Now, by the way, that's just part of living in this world, isn't it? When Adam fell, uh, thorns abound in the world in which we live. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles will grow on it. And so Paul has a secret grief a pain, I think it's plausible that his associates might not even have been aware of it. But it was, he says, in the flesh. And so many people will connect it with some bodily ailment. That's why you have the malaria. Actually, here we have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in not telling us what it is. Because if he'd said, as Spurgeon says in his commentary on this, I hope it's gout, because I suffer with gout. And I like, you know... <laughs> And so if it was gout, all the gout afflictors would be, but nobody else would get any benefit from it. No, the Holy Spirit, as is often the case, doesn't tell us because you and I can go, I know what a thorn is. And, and it's able to be generalizable in terms of ministry. And it's in the flesh. It, it either pertains to his sin nature or I think maybe his bodily existence. That's the way that works. Moreover, he says, it is a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, it's not Satan himself, so it's not a major attack of the enemy. Uh, that may be part of the thorn. I mean, it's just something noble about having Satan focus on you. But it's one of his minions. 
and it's a, it's a little thing. And, but he says to harass me. As it were, Satan is smacking Paul around because he doesn't like him. And he's given providential permission to do that, and Paul is suffering under this thorn. My friend, so will you. So will I. We are going to have suffering, partly because we live in the world of thorns and thistles. That's not the only reason, but the Bible is very clear that particularly because of your association with Jesus Christ, you will experience weaknesses and you will have suffering. You may experience social rejection. And that's not the world's worst form of persecution, but you know what? When it's your family and you're no longer invited over for Thanksgiving, that's a hurting thing. It's a thorn and it's not gonna kill you, but it's gonna hurt you. It's going to bring pain to you. Uh, You'll have spiritual warfare. You will suffer temptations. You will have discouragements. There are all kinds of ways, and we just need to realize this, that as Christians, we have these wonderful present privileges in our experience that are the Lord's sweet blessing through the Holy Spirit, but with them are trials, suffering, and weakness. In 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says, Christ suffered for you, setting an example that you would follow in his steps. In Philippians 1.29, Paul says, it is granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to, to fellowship in his sufferings. And so this is not an optional part. This is not something that unlucky Christians will have. It is part of Christianity that we will have fellowship and communion with Christ in our our sufferings, in his sufferings. Carry your cross, he says, follow me. Paul says in Philippians 3, 10, I want to know him. Now if you say I want to know him, then you're gonna have to suffer with him because it's the cross that he bears and organic, integral to the Christian experience is suffering and weakness. Now this means that this topic is for all of us. Some of us will be suffering in in extraordinary present ways, grief perhaps, some loss, maybe some sickness. Some of us will have some sort of weakness. The rest of us who don't feel that now just need to keep living as Christians because our turn will come. That's just true. And the Christian faith is weeping together and strengthening one another, and then it's my turn, and then it's yours. Now, we really have two options when that happens. And the first is one you may be familiar with. It is called self-pity. We can have a pity party. I'm suffering. I don't like suffering. Paul does not like the suffering. Uh, And by the way, don't envy an apostle. I'd like to have a vision of heaven. Go back and look at the shipwrecks and the beaten with rods. I'll let him have both of those. Uh, But uh, uh, one option we can take is self-pity. Now, this is where the Psalms are so helpful. One of my favorite Psalms for this is Psalm 73 by good old Asaph. Uh, The Psalms are so realistic. I'm going to be preaching Psalm 16 tomorrow. I don't think you should have a conference like this without the Psalms being preached at some time. The Psalms are where the Lord takes us by the hand emotionally and he walks down it with us. Psalm 73 is great. He says, the Lord is good to Israel. I'm going to set forth a propositional theological statement about how good God is and then I'm going to say but as for me my feet had almost slipped I I know it's true but there was a time when I would not say it because I envied the ungodly 
then he goes on, it's almost comically, they're fat and sleek. That was actually good back then. Uh, they're, they're not in trouble. They're pride. In our parlance, we'd say, oh, they have it great. They drive fancy cars. They have carefree lives. They don't tithe. Are you kidding me? They, uh, and, and they don't have the type of trouble. Oh, look at that. They're evil. They're mocking God, and yet they're doing well. They're, they're happy. Their kids are, you know, advancing, and, and life seems good to them, and it's eating Asaph up. And he goes on, and he ends up in great discontentment. He says actually a very dreadful thing here in verse 11, I think. He says, uh, let me go back. A, oh, there we go. Um, in vain, in vain, he says, have I trusted God. Verse 13, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know what a dangerous thing it is for us to respond to weakness, maybe a physical infirmity, maybe our circumstances, maybe the way God made us and we're not as good as others in the way that we think that those things are measured. What a dangerous thing it is to allow yourself to be given over to self-pity. It will destroy you. You know, it actually, you get to the end of Psalm 73. He says, and then I entered the sanctuary of God. Yet again, he goes to church. And he, and he hears the word of God and he's with the people of God and he remembers he's to be grateful. Yeah, it, sure, the ungodly seem to be getting by now, but there's a judgment at the end. And he starts pitying them and he, and he gets his head on straight when he goes to church. Another reason for you to be regular in your attendance at church and all those sorts of things. But self-pity is how the enemy wants you to respond to weakness. Well, Paul does something very differently. He responds to his suffering, to his thorn and his weakness in prayer. He's going to make his appeal to the Lord. I think here when he says the Lord in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that normally would mean the second person of the Godhead. He pleaded with Christ, he's receiving visions with Christ, he's having a more direct relationship with Christ that is normal, and he's going to pray about his affliction. Now, one thing that shows you is there's nothing wrong with praying for your circumstances. There's nothing wrong with crying out, Lord, I'm lonely. Would you give me a spouse? Would you, would you help me in my loneliness? Lord, I'm poor. I need money. Lord, nobody likes my preaching. Can you send somebody to the church who likes my preaching? That's not a bad <laughs> prayer. <you know? laughs> uh, he lays his head on the shoulder of his father in heaven and he asks for a change in his circumstance. And what instead he gets is the Lord gives him a change in himself. Our first point is that the Christian life involves both great privileges and real suffering and weakness and we handle them with prayer. Now having gotten into the passage there, the next four points are going to work through Paul's advance into contentment. First by saying this, Paul shows us that contentment is aided in our weakness and in our suffering. Contentment is aided by an understanding of God and his purposes. Contentment is aided by our understanding God and his purposes. Look at verse 7 again. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. The first thing he realizes is that his weakness and his affliction was given to him by God. It was God himself 
who gave the affliction to his servant Paul. And that is good news to him. And of course, however we're going to configure it, God is sovereign over all things. Our Lord Jesus made the statement that not even the fall of a sparrow to the ground happens apart from the will of your Father in heaven. My daughter was in a, we're homeschoolers, but we have a co-op. And her literature teacher is not reformed and was arguing against the idea of God being sovereign over all things. And he said uh, to my teenage daughter, uh, well, God can be sovereign over the big things, but not over the little things. And she asked the question, how can God be sovereign over the big things if he doesn't control the little things? And Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. What he's doing is he's saying, let let me think of the most insignificant event that happens, a sparrow falling to the ground. God is sovereign over that. So however, however it works out, God is the one who disposes. His decree is that which ultimately is sovereign over our experiences. And Paul understands that this trial, therefore, is not random. And let me say this, if you're thinking, oh, that's troubling to me, that this affliction, this weakness that I struggle with, it's from God, let me say what good news that is. Because you know him, and you can trust him, and he's proven that to you on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 8.32, how shall he not also, having given his son, also give us together with him all things? The God who sent his son to bear your sins upon the cross is the one you can trust and you want your afflictions to be in his hand. And Paul understands this and you see this understanding is going to be an aid in his contentment, in his attitude about his weakness. You need to realize your situation is not a random affliction at the hands of the cosmos. I read Richard Dawkins recently, you know, the the leading atheist these days. He made the statement that the universe has nothing but a pitiless indifference to your fate. And that's supposed to be helpful? That's supposed to be an attractive alternative to Christianity? A Christian says, no, my father, my father is the one who has given my thorn to me. Now, secondly, therefore, Paul realizes not only has the trial and the weakness come from God, but that God has done it for a good spiritual and redemptive purpose in his life. And that is certain to be true. You're experiencing a trial. What's God doing this? Well, it is God. And the one thing you can know in a general way is that God is using this in your life for your spiritual good and for his redemptive purpose in your life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who were called according to his purpose. There's a good memory verse. That does not say all things are good. There's nothing unchristian about weeping with your own trials and the trials of others. I, I love when the Lord Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, and Jesus has the answers. Uh, he's going to resurrect him in about three minutes, and he weeps. Because he's human. And one of my mottos is being Christian doesn't make me less human. It gives me, in fact, an expanded capacity for humanity. And I can weep and I can say this is bad. And yet I can say I know that God is sovereign and he's going to work it for good. Even if I don't know what the good is yet. And I'd like to know. I know from his word and from his, my experience with him that God is intending my spiritual and redemptive good in my suffering. Elizabeth Prentice was a woman who suffered greatly, had several children she'd lost. She herself had all kinds of painful maladies and a dear friend of hers had lost a child in a very terrible way. This was 100 years ago. 
And she wrote her a letter, a lot of good counsel in it, and at the end she said, oh, my dear friends, do not fail to gain from this tragedy all the good that God has intended for you. God's purposes in your weakness and in your suffering involve your spiritual good, your redemptive good, and his glory. And Johnny Erickson Tata has written a chapter called God's Plan A. And if there's anybody who has existential authority on this topic, it's Johnny Erickson Tata. And you probably know her story. As a, as a vibrant young woman, she dove into the water and the, the tide was going out and she hit the bottom and she severed her spinal cord and she's been a paraplegic all of her life. And if you don't think that she has wrestled, you know, you see her so vibrant in public, don't think that she hasn't struggled with this. And she's very open about it in a very helpful way. And she wrote this article saying that, you know, first thing she tried to figure out was this God or Satan. She concluded it was probably both. It might not have been Satan. He might have not had her attention. It could just be the fallen world she's in, but it was certainly God because he's sovereign over all things. And then she had to wrestle, well, what does this mean about my life? I had these plans for how I was going to serve God, and that was plan A, and I guess God has ruled out my plan A, and this is now plan B. And then she realized how wrong that was. Here's what she says. God's motive was to thwart the devil and to use my wheelchair to change me and to make me more like Christ through it. And that was God's plan A for her life, to be more like Jesus, to know him, to have his grace more powerfully at work in her life. God permits, she says, what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. God is accomplishing in my life what he loves, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And she concludes, that is my plan A. And so God is at work for our spiritual and redemptive good. Now, in Paul's case, he lets us know a little more specifically what's going on in his life. Verse 7 again. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, Paul is saying that, you see, there's a danger. God has given me these privileges. I've been to the third heaven, and there's a danger that I'd become puffed up with myself. I'd be walking down the street, and people don't, maybe I'd preach. They didn't like my sermon, and I would think to myself, you know, I've been to the third heaven. And, uh, and, and there's a tendency, he says, that he would be boastful. Now, you look at Paul, and you say, now, here is an eminently holy person. Really, this is a very mature Christian person. And I will say to you, if that Paul needed weakness and suffering to keep him from being conceited, how much more is that certainly true of me and of you? And so what Paul says specifically about his case is certain to be the case in a general way with us, the privileges we have as Christians, you know, you become a godly person. Uh, you, you, let's, let's put it this way. You read Ted Tripp's Shepherding a Child Heart. You have read that if you're children, right? If you're parents, read Ted Tripp's Shepherding a Child Heart. And you will have, it'll be beneficial to you. And then you'll become an obnoxious parent in the, in the nursery, uh, lording it over. We were very blessed. We have five children. Our second child was colicky. And so uh, it just, you know, all our self-righteousness as parents went out the window. He was screaming this entire first two years. I I always said I would have have admitted my wife to the mental ward, but I was too depressed to think it through. (laughs) He screamed for two years. 
And honestly, if I had five kids who were perfect the whole way, I would have no compassion. I would be tempted toward self-righteousness to the poor people who had kids in my church. Alas, I have been delivered from that. <laughs> by, the thor- by the way, he's uh, wonderful. Uh, it's a totally different now, but uh, that was a real t- trial during those colicky years of our second child. God was, among other things, about, by the way, a lot of things have nothing to do with me. He's got uh, the whole... Redemptive history he's working on. I've got my little part in it. But part of it is the weakness that is needed for these people who are being blessed. But you see, we still have pride. We still have a sin nature. We are still menaces through our puffed up nature. And so God will give us a weakness. He will not give us something that we desire, maybe that others have, so that we would not be conceited. You know, don't deceive yourself and think that the love of the praise of men is something that is not universal among our race. It is, a, I'll say as a preacher, it's one of the first things you have to deal with. You, you preach, you, you preach a great sermon and people are crying. I'll never forget, I was preaching the evening service at 10th Church, that great historic church, and people were falling over and there was a line was there to meet me. The next week I thought I preached, I thought it was a better sermon and nobody said anything to me. And it ate me up. And I had to learn to sanctify, to give it away. I I preach, I pray, and I move on. I leave it in Jesus' hands. But the temptation, the desire of the praise of men, we all are subject to it. And so God will give us weakness. Not just Paul. He will give us sufferings that we might not fall to the snare of pride. You know, in Paul's case, how important it was. Paul's ministry was strategically significant. And so if he had become proud because of what the Lord gave him, it would have stolen from the Lord's glory, but it would have ruined his ministry. I think we can assume without this thorn, whatever it was, uh, Paul would have been unwilling to undergo the sacrificial sufferings that he did, to abase himself in a way that was such a hallmark of his ministry that was so important to the effectiveness of of his evangelism. But, But if he was puffed up, he would never do that. It would have been bad for the church, which needed to see the power of Christ in a humble servant form. He was to bring that to them, and that required him to suffer. It was God's good at work in his suffering. Now, what we're saying, remember, this is our second point, or our first point. The understanding is, the understanding of God's purposes is an aid in our contentment. Now, this means, I think that if if you have a weakness, you have a prayer request, a legitimate request. This is all legitimate as Paul's praying for it. And if the Lord has not given it to you, you should probably assume that the possession of it would be bad for you in a way that you may not know. And we should say, thank you. We should praise God even, in the, even while we suffer of it. If the Lord is saying no to that prayer, we should assume, and it will aid our contentment. To say, I'm going to assume that God has disposed of me out of his love and his goodness. He's proved it to me. I can trust him. This weakness and this trial is for my good. He's protecting me from the thing that I desire to have. It might be that he's preparing you. You think of poor Joseph in the book of Genesis. In his youth, his young man, the vigor of his manhood is poured away in darkness because he obeyed God. The whole Potiphar's wife thing, the classic example, flee from sexual temptation. He does that and is arrested. You know, when you're reading it for the first time, you're waiting for the shoe to drop. But nope, nope, God, the shoe does not drop. He goes into prison and into the darkness. And what's going on there? God is preparing him 
for the purpose of his life and suffering and the effects of suffering, learning to pray. Isn't it true that without suffering, we would not know that familiar place on the shoulder of our Heavenly Father if we had not been there with tears? He wants us to have that relationship. Our ministry in this fallen world requires broken Christians who bear the grace of Christ, and so we suffer. Joseph was being prepared. Maybe God's preparing you. But you can be certain that God is working in your weakness and suffering for your spiritual and redemptive good and his purposes. That's why many of the Puritans would say, Lord, forgive me for not thanking you for my thorn. Not in some perverse way. It still hurts. We still have a a tear on our face. We may still be praying for it to be relieved. But while it's there, we go, Lord, I thank you because it's for my good. And I trust you for what you're doing in my life. Understanding God's purposes will aid us in contentment. Now next, we find that contentment is encouraged by Christ's sufficient grace. Contentment is encouraged by Christ's sufficient grace. Here's Jesus' answer. Notice that Jesus does not change his circumstances. Paul is praying for a change in circumstances and Jesus says, what I'm going to change is you. My grace is sufficient for you. That was Jesus' answer. And God's grace in Christ and its sufficiency for us encourages us to contentment in our weakness and suffering. There's really three ways to take this statement of my grace is sufficient to you. One is in a general way. Charles Hodge in his commentary translated as saying, my love is sufficient for you. The knowledge, of the, the knowledge that I love you, the experience of my love in your life is sufficient for you in the midst of this weakness and trial and loss. It is enough that I love you. It secures and implies all other good. Now, people respond to that and say, I'm not sure how that works out. I'm in a great trial. I mean, I have a great loss. I have a great suffering. And the fact that Christ loves me is supposed to be enough for me? And the answer, of course, is yes. And that's what Jesus wants us to grow into this. And that's what he desires in our sufferings in many cases. He wants us to say, Lord, I would rather have all this loss, all this suffering, this thorn that's been driving me crazy. I've been praying about it for so long. But with your love, I will take all of that. Then I should not have your love. That would be the greatest trial possible. The love of God the Son, the love of Christ. He wants us to value his love above all other things. He gives us himself. And so contentment says, I am willing to be low. I am willing to be poor. I am willing to be despised if Christ will love me. Another way to think of it, though, I think a very legitimate way, is in terms of grace as salvation gifts. The gifts that I have for you in salvation are sufficient in the midst of this trial. Last Sunday, I preached Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And one of the points I made is that God has not equally distributed earthly blessings. 
Some of his people are healthy, some are sick, some are poor, some are rich, some are this, some are that. He's distributed his temporal blessings uh, not equally, but his spiritual blessings he has distributed equally. All of us have all the spiritual blessings. And of course, in that great hymn of Ephesians 1, he works them out. We have the blessing of the election in Christ before the foundation of of the world. I have the, 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 the grace of adoption in Christ. I am a child of God. I have the grace of the forgiveness of my sins and the knowledge of the forgiveness of my sins. I, I have the mystery of the will of God revealed to me through the scripture. What a thing it is to be able to read your Bible and to know God and his purposes. This grace is sufficient for me. I have the, 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 the grace of the sealing of the Holy Spirit who's alive in me and he marks me out as belonging to God and he has secured for me an inheritance forever. I am an heir of God. You think of somebody who's in terrible circumstances. Maybe he's working in an unfair workplace. He's getting a, a very low wage. Would it change his attitude if he was aware that he was the heir of a great trust? And in a very short while, he would be endowed with great riches and blessings and honor. It would change his attitude very much. And that is not a mere suggestion. That is our actual truth. I wanted to say when Thabini was preaching last night, that's our future history. This is not a, isn't that wonderful? Revelation 21, 22, but never hear that kind of passage and say, yeah, it's kind of like a fairy tale. No, the fairy tales are kind of like it. You just keep down your road of trials and sufferings and failings and stumblings in Christ, growing stronger in him, and in Christ it is going to lead you to an inheritance and glory that we heard displayed for us last night. And that grace in the midst of our suffering and weakness, yes, it is sufficient for us. We are heirs. We are princes. We are princesses. We have a destiny upon us granted by the triune God to be heirs together with Christ. And the knowledge of that, the grace of salvation is sufficient for us. We might take it thirdly in terms of spiritual power. Grace is God's love for us in Christ. Grace is the salvation, blessings. But grace is also the power that is given us through the Holy Spirit. And this is so much of the torment in trials and weakness. It's the fear. How can I bear it? Am I going to be able to live with this affliction all my life? Am I, Johnny Erickson Tana, am I going to be a paraplegic the rest? How's it going to work out? We all have our own versions of that. And Jesus says, I will give you the power. And let it be sufficient to you that I will supply to you. We'll see that's a particular context here. Let your contentment be encouraged by the knowledge that you are not in it alone. The Savior who loves you and who has lavished upon you all the riches of salvation, he is resolved that you will have the power in him. As you trust in him, as you walk in him, you will persevere in the trial. Think of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane. When he prayed and the angels came and they strengthened him. Well, the same will be true for his people in unseen ways. The Holy Spirit, all the resources of the sovereign God, his grace will be sufficient for you. Let that encourage your contentment. Well, next is my fourth point. It's the third point in terms of this progression. Uh, The understanding of God's purposes aids our contentment. 
The sufficient grace of Christ encourages our contentment. And next, our contentment is experienced as God's power is made perfect in our weakness. What a great statement our Lord makes here. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What he's saying is your weakness is perfectly suited to my power. You are not placed in a disadvantageous situation by your weakness and your loss and your affliction. Quite the opposite. It is precisely there that my power at work is most suited. Now how is that? Well, it is in our weakness that Christ's power works to the display of the glory of God. Isn't that true? Somebody has it all together. Things seem to be going great in their life and they're able to accomplish things. It's not evident that God's at work, but then you take the poor, you take the downcast, you take the weak, you take the disenfranchised and you see what they are able to do and you say, God is at work there. And so it is weakness that is the venue in which God's power can be brought forth. I remember reading the story of Dave Dravecki. He was a, a pitcher some years ago for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he was doing very well. He made the all-star team. I think he was a Cy Young candidate one year. And he had become a Christian, and shortly afterwards, he threw a fastball, and his arm, his, he's a lefty, his left arm shattered at the shoulder. And uh, they said to him, his career's over. And he said to them, Jesus Christ can do all things through him who gives me strength. I'm going to come back by the power of Christ. And so he prayed, and, and it was really something of a miracle. He had this recovery, and uh, the shoulder was reconstructed. They, oh, he had cancer is what it was. That's why it broke, and they took the tumor out, and they were working in the muscles. And it really was, it seemed to be a miracle. And he tells of the night he was coming back to, to return to the stadium and to pitch. And, and in his mind, he, he played it out that he would go and the lights would be there. He'd be on the mound and he would pitch a great game. And they'd come to him afterwards and they would be reveling in the remarkable achievement. And he would say, I give all the glory and honor to Jesus Christ. That was the picture he had. And he got on the mound and in the first inning, he threw a fastball and his arms shattered again. And he lay there writhing on national TV before the audience with, before whom he had by, in faith, in sincerity, boasted about the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shortly after that, his pitching arm was amputated. And he went through a long series of painful uh, rehabilitation in which he, he was, he's honest about wrestling with depression. And he was bitter. He was tempted to be bitter with God. I wanted to glorify you. And he realized that God was allowing him to glorify him. That it's not in our achievement. It's not in our strength that we best are able to display to the world the glory of the power of Christ. But it is in our brokenness. I want to say to you, and I don't know you, so I know there must be someone here hearing me now. I'm saying this, and you're going through a crushing trial. And there is some weakness that has broken your heart. But I do want to say to you, this is a precious opportunity by which you can give glory to your Savior. And his power will be made perfect in that weakness as he enables you not to be an all-star pitcher, but to persevere in faith and praise and love to others and joy. His power is made perfect and it will glorify him in it. And it will glorify him not only to the world, but to you as well. 
Isn't that true in our lives if we've lived a little while that it's been our sufferings that have taught us the grace of the Lord and the power of the Lord? We learn to trust him. We learn to wait upon him. We learn to pray. We learn to believe that prayers are answered. Our relationship with him was strengthened. He became real to us as God and Savior. When does that happen? It doesn't tend to happen in the pinnacles of earthly success and happiness and health. It's when we're broken in weakness. And his power is made perfect for that. And God's power is able to achieve his purpose despite all our weakness. One of my favorite examples of this is William Carey. You may know him, a famous missionary, a pioneering missionary. Uh, wanted to uh, bring the gospel to India in the early days of that work. And you talk about a man who was weak and faced with insuperable obstacles. It's William Carey. He didn't have very good gifts. He wasn't a very good preacher, teacher. He'd been a pastor. He'd been a failed pastor. He was utterly broke. He had no money. Uh, he went to the missionary society and he offered himself, I want to go to India for Jesus. And they looked at him and said, no thanks. They wouldn't endorse him. So he went to his wife and she said, I'm not going. You may be going, but I'm not going. And she was pregnant. Uh, the government was opposed to him. And then if he should get there, uh, you know, the, India was a terrible place because of the East India Company was maltreating the people. The, the white men were exploiting the natives. And you're supposed to go there. They're supposed to buy into your religion. I mean, these, this is weakness. But he was persuaded that God had called him. You know, he's a famous guy who he went to his elders. He's a Reformed Baptist. And they said, he, they, the, one of the elders said to him, if God, this is, this is the version of Calvinism and the and sovereignty of God. A young man, if God intends to save the heathen, he can do it without you. Well, that is not the way the Reformed faith works. That's not how our response to the sovereignty of God. He's the one who, who, his motto of his missionary society was expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And in his weakness, he laid it before the Lord. He had a burning passion for the heathen. And off he went and through prayer, it was prayer. You'll find that to be true of Hudson Taylor, of William Carey, all the great missionaries. Prayer, confidence in the promises of God. At one point he says, well, I'll, all, I have God, all I have is God, but I know that his word is sure. And off he went and the impact of his life and his missionary labors resound. I mean, he was so weak and the power of God was able to achieve all that he desired through his life. Well, let me say this, this expression my power is made perfect in weakness is shorthand for the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. The way of the cross is not that because of the glory of our earthly achievement, everyone wants to be like us. And because of our strength, why, why they become Christians? Because we're so charismatic and fit and cheerful and our kids are so perfect and our grades. No, that is not the, that is not the way of the cross. That is not how G Jesus could have gone that way. You know, that what was going on on Palm Sunday. Become a military messiah. Become a worldly messiah. He had the power to do it. And Jesus took up the cross. And we are to take up the cross. And it is by dying that we enter into life. I want to know him and the, and the fellowship of his sufferings that I might partake in his resurrection. Tim Keller talks about the power that is found in a single acorn. I have a million acorns on my yard every November. Uh, we have oak trees everywhere. Fortunately, I have a little free labor source called my sons. It's great. The, uh, 
But uh, every acorn has within it the power to fill a continent with wood resources. It, it makes, out of the acorn comes a tree, and out of that oak tree come more acorns and more trees. But there's a catch. That acorn is only able to accomplish its great potential if first it dies. And the Lord Jesus said, it is by dying that we live, and it is through suffering that his power rests upon us. Our contentment is experienced as his power is made perfect in our weakness. And then lastly, our contentment is manifested as we rejoice in our weakness because of his power. We actually rejoice in our weakness because of his power. Look at Paul, how Paul ends the passage. Therefore, I will boast. You want to boast? You want to ridicule for me for my weaknesses? You want to boast about your strengths? I will boast about my weaknesses. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I rejoice in the weaknesses because of the power of Christ. Well, Paul's not rejoicing in some morbid way in suffering and weakness. He's not one of those guys living on a pillar in the desert in Syria, the Simon the Stylite. Just that there's no virtue in suffering for its own sake. But the power of Christ in the midst of the brokenness of our lives and our weakness and our strugglings and our sufferings, these we rejoice in. I love what Paul says here. He says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In the Greek, that is, that it may tabernacle upon me. That the power of Christ may pitch his tent upon me. And you think of Israel where the tabernacle was there and the Shekinah glory dwelt in the midst of it. And listen to what Paul's saying. Because what you and I think that God, and here's what the super apostles were arguing. God is pitching his tent with the successful, with the famous, with the beautiful, with the rich, with the, with the people who own their own jets and have apartments on this cruise ship that goes around the world constantly when they're not arguing and trying to sell it from one another. And those are the ones where God is blessed. And the Bible says, no, no, no. When you're weak for his sake, your heart turned towards him in brokenness, God's power will tabernacle with you. He will pitch his tent with you. Isn't that what we see in Jesus' ministry? Not the rich, not the favorable people, not the empowered, the poor, the downcast, the sinners. He pitched his tent with them. Kent Hughes says this, Christ pitches his tent with the weak and unknown, with the suffering shut-in, with the anonymous pastor and missionary, with the quiet, godly servants in the home and in the marketplace. Oh, that his power may be pitched upon me, that my life might be a place where the power of God is manifested. See, suddenly, I don't think of my life in terms of, oh, I want to be strong, I want to be successful, I want accolades and laws. I'm not asking for suffering, but when it comes, I, I turn to the Lord and I say, let this weakness be consecrated for your glory. May your power be displayed in the weakness of my life. Well, let me conclude by pointing out that while we live in a thorn-infested world and many of the thorns that Paul experienced, you will experience as well, there is nonetheless a thorn that you will never know, 
and that you will never experience. And let me point out, when Paul says that three times he prayed about this suffering and this thorn, who else do we know who prayed three times over suffering? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that suggestive? Matthew 26 tells of our Lord Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed, oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken away from me. And then he prayed a second time, we're told. And then he prayed a third time, Father, if possible, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And Jesus bore thorns. But think of the crown of thorns that he bore. Actually, this word for thorn is used by many ancient writers of the cross. So here you and I are wrestling with our weakness, wrestling with our circumstances, wrestling with our suffering, and it is, we are aided by understanding God's will. We are encouraged by his sufficient grace. We experience the power of Christ working in our weakness, and we manifest that contentment with joy in him, and then we look to the cross. And there we see the thorn that we deserve, and yet we do not receive and we see the one who deserves no thorn, and yet he received it in our place. There we see the death that would have conquered and crushed us had we borne it. And out of love for us, he bore it that he might crush death and sin and give us the victory. I love how the writer of Hebrews picks up on this. And here's his conclusion to the matter. Consider Jesus. He's struggling with contentment. There's no shame in admitting, I'm struggling with this considered Jesus, he says, who for the joy set before him took up the cross, scorning it, saying, you said joy in taking up the cross? That's what the scripture says. Jesus and all of his suffering, suffering so much that he, he sweat blood drops, the anxiety manifesting all through his flesh, and yet in his spirit there was joy, joy to be doing the will of his Father, joy to be redeeming you and me unto himself forever, joy that he was through the cross knowing he was gaining the crown of glory. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way your gospel turns everything upside down. We thank you, Lord, that the things that we fear are the things that you conquer and make instruments of our salvation, of our sanctification, of our communion with you, of our usefulness to your gospel. Lord, I'm not going to stand up here and pray for weakness. That is your job to distribute those. We're not going to pray for sufferings, but Lord, we need not. We bow before you. We know that you are the all-wise God. We know that you have weakness, you have thorns, you have suffering for us. And so, Father, even in advance, and for those of us feeling the pain of them now, we glorify you that these thorns are in your hand and they are for our good Therefore, your redemptive purposes for the glory of your kingdom in Christ and the blessing of your people forever. We thank you and we appeal to you for sufficient grace. Make in our weakness your power perfect. And then, Father, allow us the privilege, the privilege of glorifying you 
by rejoicing in our weakness, always considering Jesus, the thorn that he bore, that we might be delivered in the end. We pray in his name. Amen.